Chapter 4 of Mabel Ross, The Sewing Girl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Bertha Giles. Within a year after the death of her mother, a variation took place in Mabel's duties. This was from homework for private customers to a place in the store of one of the principal agents for sewing machines. It was at Mrs. Lemming's suggestion the change was made, as the summer months, it was now July, were losing Mabel most of her customers. Through this lady's efforts only, the excellent place Mabel found herself in possession of was attained, such positions being too much in demand for the young girl to have come into it by any exertions of her own. In the large cloakroom of this store, Mabel had prospect of making, through the coming autumn and winter months, yet more than she had made on her homework. Yet, even at the present unfavorable season, it afforded her a living, which her customer work had latterly failed to do. Indeed, had she not previously laid by every dollar she could possibly spare, her position would have become a distressing one. But opposed to these advantages of her new position was the being necessitated to leave little Lily through the waking hours of the weekdays. This was a trial to Mabel herself, and both a trial and inconvenience to the child. To the kindness of a couple of neighbors only, Mabel was at all enabled to get over the difficulty. These neighbors, one of whom occupied a room in the house where Mabel lodged, and the other a portion of an adjacent one, consenting to take the child on alternate days under charge. Poor little Lily missed her sister very much, and though for so young a child, particularly patient and uncomplaining, she was, for a time, irreconcilable to the change. By and by, however, she found consolation in looking forward to the evening hour, which was to reunite her and her loved Mabel, and beyond this, to the one day out of seven, which was to see no parting between them. For Mabel herself, the change was a great one, in more respects than those already mentioned. It brought her in contact with other girls of her age and vocation, and companions of this sort were new to her. The reserve and quiet of her manner caused her, for a time, to feel lost among her new associates. But these were qualities approved by her employers, and she soon won their confidence through them. Among the very few of the girls employed in Mabel's department, who were rather drawn toward her than repulsed by the peculiarities of her demeanor, was one known as Bertha Giles. Of all the girls in the employ of Mr. Blank, Bertha was the one Mabel would have chosen to be well regarded by. There was a quiet, subdued manner about her, which both harmonized with her own feelings and interested her. And she was not sorry when she found Bertha, evening after evening, taking advantage of their homeward walk, lying for some distance in the same direction, to claim her as a companion. One evening, as they thus walked together, Mabel remarked on the similarity of her own and her companion's position, so far as they were both doubly orphaned and employed in the same way for a livelihood. Bertha sighed, and for a moment was silent. There is not the similarity you think, she then said. Just now, our positions are a good deal alike, but it is only now. You have had an education, which fits you for something better than sewing if the charge of your little sister, as you say, permitted it. 
while I have but recently had opportunity to improve the little instruction I received as a child. Your fate is a happy, happy one to mine, Mabel. You are beginning where I leave off. Or, I may say, you are at the top of the ladder at the offset, while I have reached it, step by step, through, well, through, what shall I say, through things it is likely you have neither heard nor dreamed of, and that, beginning where you do, you may thank God it is not likely you ever will know of. I have heard something of the hardships of a sewing girl's life, rejoined Mabel, though I have known nothing of it. Let me tell you something of mine, said her companion. I was only eleven when I first began working for a living. I am now twenty-two. My mother was a noble good woman, and she spared no pains to teach me her own good principles. She taught me what has been all to me since, though she died when I was only turned of ten. My father brought me with him to Chicago, where there was a good opening for him to work. He was a bricklayer. He got a large job and was well paid, and everything seemed to be looking promising for us. We had taken rooms with a family on Clark Street, and one evening, about eight weeks after our coming to Chicago, I was looking for him to come home to supper, as I often did. It got to be late, and I thought it strange there was no sign of him, for he was very steady in his habits, and never stayed away after working hours. I went to the front step to look about, and while I was there, I saw quite a number of people coming along, and in their midst, two men carrying a settee, with something looking like a man covered up on it. I hadn't the smallest thought what it was. Oh, no, I only looked on like the rest, because it was something out of the way to stare at. Presently, just as the crowd had got a few doors from where I stood, a little boy of the neighborhood ran up to me and called out, Oh, Berthy, Berthy, they're bringing home your dead father. They didn't know where he lived till Mr. Burns told them, and now they're bringing him home to be buried. I felt as though it was some terrible dream I was in. I couldn't move or speak. The settee was brought to the curb of the sidewalk, and I tried to go forward to it. I don't know what happened after that, for I fell down, and they had to carry me out of the way to bring the settee with the body of my poor father into the house. He had fallen from a high scaffolding at the building where he worked, and was instantly killed by the fall. The woman of the house was a good sort of woman, and she treated me well. Better, as I found out since, than most would have done, though I didn't think so then. In a little while, when I was able to work, she gave me such things to do as, she said, paid for my living, and she fixed up one or two old black dresses of her own to be my mourning for my father, exchanging them for the good calicoes I had been wearing which she gave to her children. She was the only living creature I had to care for me in Chicago, or indeed anywhere, and I was willing to stay with her as long as I could. She soon found I was handier at my needle than at housework, 
and gave me sewing to do instead of rough jobs, and as I always liked sewing, I was well satisfied. So all did very well till my old black clothes began to wear out, and she told me, as my work didn't pay for more than my board and lodging, she couldn't give me anything new, but only old ones again to patch up. I'd have stood this satisfied enough, but for some of the neighbors who had seen my work, telling me that if I got regularly paid for it, I'd get more than enough to buy new clothes besides food and lodging. I believed them, for they offered me a right good price themselves. So I told her about it, and she said I might do as I liked. I worked first for one, then for another, and in this way got to be a regular sewing girl before I was twelve years old. I learned to work on the sewing machine, too, and that was a great thing for me. I wouldn't have asked anything better than to get along as I was doing now, if I could all the time have got work as I began with. But this didn't last. Many times, for a whole week, I couldn't get more than one or two days sewing to do, and this put me back, so that I was often wanting not only shoes and clothes, but even enough to eat. Seeing it wouldn't do to depend on families for work, I got the woman I now lodged with to introduce and recommend me to a clothing store to do machine sewing. But though I could work as fast and a good deal better than many of the grown girls employed, the man would give me little more than half pay, though his best pay was so small that it was only with the closest pinching a girl could continue to live by it at all. Disappointed again, I determined to work for this man only at such times as I was entirely without customer work, and by managing this way, I believed I should get along. A woman, who had sometimes given me work, chanced to come to me after I had been working in the store a few weeks, and offered me three days sewing in her house. Of course, I gladly took it. With her, I got sixty cents a day and my meals beside. In the store, I got twenty-five cents a day and had to find myself. Such opportunities as she gave me, occurring once in a while, I saw would enable me to come a good deal nearer to what might be called living than the way I'd been getting along for the past weeks. Ignorant child that I was, I didn't know yet one half the hardness of my employer. When, at the end of the three days, I returned to him for work, he asked if it was sickness had kept me away. I had been taught by my mother to tell the truth, and though I suspected from the look and tone of the man that it might be against me now, I honestly explained what had kept me from the store, saying that to live... I must take customer work when I could get it. Then I learned how entirely hard and soulless was this man, how less than nothing it was to him that I was a poor orphan child, with no one to look to but myself, only my two feeble hands between me and starvation from cold and hunger. I was to work for him the six days out of the seven so long as he should want me, and for his own niggardly prices, at the same time liable to be dismissed at any moment, or I should not work for him at all. Had he been willing to pay me at the same rate as girls a few years older, I would willingly have bound myself to him. 
but I could not live on the short pay he gave me, and saying so, I left him. I spent that day trying to get a place somewhere else, and by evening succeeded. With my new employer, I was obliged to bind myself as the first insisted, but then he was willing to make a slight advance on my former wages, bringing them nearer to that he paid the full-grown girls. I got thirty-five cents a day. I was now all the time sewing, and striving to live by the sewing, busy at the store on the machine, or at basting and buttonhole making, from seven to six, and after my return home, engaged until a late hour of the night with hand sewing on such customer work as I could get. At other times it was my own sewing I was busy with, or the washing of my clothes, for I couldn't, of course, pay for the doing of it. And so, night after night, I was employed for hours after I should have been in bed. There were no more cheerful little talks with people who employed me, no more cutting out and fitting and change of one sort or another to enliven my toil. It was the ceaseless, hard taskwork, with small wages, done in forced silence and under the eye of a hard taskmaster, or the solitary homework, dragged through weary night hours, with feeble light and crushed spirit. To be sure, there were plenty of others doing just as myself, but that didn't in the least mend the matter. And as we sat at our store work, each of us only read in the faces around her the same dreary, day-in and day-out story she was going over in her own heart. After struggling along for a while, I found that to keep the snug little room I had been occupying, and to board with the nice family I was with, were comforts I could not afford. So I looked about for a cheaper way of living. There were three girls working for my employer, who lodged together in a house where there were both lodgers and boarders, and they told me I could find accommodation there, and I applied for it and got it. Here, my expenses were a good deal lessened, but very soon I learned to look back on the time spent in the quiet place I had left as a time of happiness to what I now knew. This crowded boarding house was noisy and disorderly, and filled with so many strange people that I was at first quite frightened. I told you that my mother was a good woman, and that she had striven to give me good morals and good habits. I was only eleven when I lost her, but Providence—I will not call it chance, Mabel—has ever since placed me with persons who lived decently. They seemed to respect the good training I had had, and to be unwilling to place anything in my way likely to change me for the worse. How different it all was now! A good many of the lodgers were sewing girls, striving, like myself, to eke out a living from their poorly paid work. Some of them had, from the first, impressed me unfavorably, and upon a nearer acquaintance I liked them still less. But I could make little, if any, choice between them and others associated as we were together, especially as I had to share a room with several. I at times look back with a feeling of terror to the four years I spent in that house, and in others that left me no more choice in my companions. I saw so much, 
I heard so much. I was so mixed up with wrongdoing, with temptations, misery, and despair. God only knows how I came out of it unhurt. Yes, he knows, for he kept always before me the thought of my mother, my good, pure mother, whose lessons I couldn't forget. Oh, Mabel, I saw in those times every turn and move of a poor sewing girl's life. I saw their trials and temptations, their weakness, their remorse, and their suffering. I saw, too, how many a one whose place it was to pity, guide, and encourage them to good, their very employers even, plotted to lead them to evil. Oh, surely, there were temptations enough in their pinching poverty, the actual starvation often staring them in the face without this. There were girls I knew who had much good in them, and that wanted to live virtuously and honestly, and had struggled long to do so. Yet I knew of more than one of these dropping off from among us, and being seen no more in the busy places they had filled. I heard of them. I heard how they had been driven into wrong by want and trouble, or enticed into it by artful workers. I heard things, Mabel Ross, that would make your heart ache and your blood boil to know, but I will not tell them to you. I would be happier and easier at this moment if I could forget them all myself, if I could forget all the world's injustice and oppression I learned in those four years. Though I did no wrong myself, I often feel almost as remorseful as though I had. Those things have left such ugly places in my memory. They have taken so much of the happy, young feeling out of me. It will only be a few months now before I am married, and it is a real good young man will make me his wife. Since I have known this young carpenter, I felt worse than ever about those miserable four years, and I think I'd be willing to give any four of those coming to forget them. I'd be so much happier as the simple girl I was before. I'd feel myself so much worthier the love of this good young man. How did you get a place at Mr. Blank's? Mabel inquired. Through the young carpenter. A friend of his boarded in the house where I lodged. He knew, well as I did, the trials we poor sewing girls were put to, and became a true friend of mine, because he saw I could not be led to wrong. He spoke kindly of me to George Hallett, and in that way brought us together. George had influence to get me on trial at Mr. Blank's, and I did my best to give satisfaction, so got fixed in the place I have now. At Mr. Blank's, I'm easy and happy to what I was before, and believe I needn't fear knowing again such dark days as I have come through. The two girls had now arrived at the corner where they generally parted, and Bertha Giles turned in the direction of her home, leaving Mabel to pursue the way to hers, not only graver, but sadder for the story she had just heard. End of chapter 4